scripture and open to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It's on page 1772 of the Blue Pew Bible. We're going to be looking at a a large-ish section of scripture uh, from verse 10 in chapter 1 through verse 23 in chapter 3. Because here Paul is dealing with divisions in the church. Divisions in the church. Tons of examples of these probably in in the lives of, of you sitting out there. You've experienced the divisions. I read recently about a, a um, church down in Dallas that became divided. And the rift was so bitter that each side had a lawsuit against the other side of the church in public court. The story, of course, uh, hit the news in Dallas and garnered uh, considerable interest by the, the city down there. The secular judge, when it was brought before him, he wisely ruled that he can't rule until they take it to their ecclesiastical courts. So that's exactly what they did. And eventually a decision was made to award the real estate and properties to one of the sides. The losers, of course, withdrew from membership and formed a new church just down the road. It was reported in the Dallas News that the church court had traced the trouble, the split, the division, the divide, the schism to its source. And are you ready for this? The trouble all began one night at a church potluck when an elder was served a smaller slice of ham than the child sitting next to him. That split the church. And yes, we can chuckle. God doesn't chuckle. It's serious. And that's what Paul is writing about here. The seriousness of those divides. The seriousness with which he takes his bride. And he's appealing to the brothers here in verse 10, to take it that seriously. He says, I appeal to you, brothers. I implore you, is is the sense there. I implore you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another, so that there may be no divisions among you, and that you may be perfectly united in mind and in thought. I want to pause there for just a minute because that's the theme of the next of the first three chapters of, of what Paul is writing there in to the Corinthian church. He's imploring them at all costs, at all costs to stop the divisions because he knows how damaging they are. John Calvin believed that the devil's chief device was disunity and discord. And division, So much so that he 
wrote a trusted colleague, and he wrote, Among Christians, there ought to be such a great dislike of schism that they may always avoid it as fast as it lies in their power. Kill it at its core. And that's basically what Paul is saying here. Get rid of this division quickly. It's serious. This is nothing to play around with. Avoid division, hate disunity, detest schism. Just like in our opening illustration, there's always a cause of schism. And that's what Paul IDs right off the bat. If you look at verse 11 and 12, he identifies the source of their schism. He says, my brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this, one of you says, I follow Paul, another, I follow Apollos, another, I follow Cephas or Peter, still another, I follow Christ. There are factions within the church. There are dividing among, uh, around leaders in the church. I had the incredibly unfortunate experience, Carrie and I, to understand this exact type of schism in one of the churches we attended where there was a, a um, older pastor who had actually planted the church and he was in his 60s at the time and they, they were preparing for his retirement in the, in the future, in the, the five or ten years. And so they brought in a younger pastor and he brought in a different style of worship. He brought in a different set of gifts and it started to make two congregations within that one body. And there were literally words said just like this. I follow Connectly. I follow Christensen. And it eventually divided the church. And now there's another church just down the road. Division is serious. And it's not just about leadership. The cause is actually deeper. And that's what Paul turns to in chapter 3. If you want to turn there, the first four verses, he actually identifies the root cause. It's not so much about the leadership. He says this to them, starting in verse 1 of chapter 3. Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you're not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? Paul's saying very frankly here that divisions are, the, the cause of these divisions is spiritual immaturity. He uses the, that metaphor that's used in Hebrews of milk and solid food. You're, I fed you milk five years ago, and, and here we are five years into this, and, and you're still not ready for solid food. You're acting immature, you're acting child, childish, childlike is what he's saying. 
But Paul gets even more specific about the origins of division. Did you catch it? Worldliness. You're acting worldly. The principles and practices of the world are being imported into the church. That's what he's saying. The application for us today is we have to be very, very judicious in what practices, what principles we bring into the church from the world. Because I'm not saying all the world's wisdom is, is unwise. I'm not saying that. But we have to be very wise. Because what could seem like a no-brainer in the world can actually be very unwise in the church. And we have to be so careful, people, that we don't say it worked here, makes sense here, it'll make sense here. Because I can tell you from experience in that church that split, that's what was going on there. And that seems to be what's going on here. Worldly principles tend to creep into the church. The late, great Yale church historian, Kenneth Latourette, concluded each of his seven volumes on church history, seven volumes on church history, he concluded each of them with a chapter on the effects of that particular age on the church. He identified how, how the world had impacted the church of that age. And we don't have to be rocket scientists to just look back over our shoulder over the last century and the century before that to see how that is true. Just think about the 20th century for a second. The 20th century with the health-wealth doctrine that sprang up in the 20th century, in America, the prosperity of America, and those principles were just imported into the church, and it eventually became doctrine. And now we have churches preaching that, if you can believe this, that in this life, you should not have suffering. In this life, you should have all the blessings. Which is not scriptural at all. As a matter of fact, the, a book we read together, David Platt's Radical. Do you remember the, the, the subtitle um, of that book? The subtitle of that book is Taking Your Faith Back from the American Dream. In other words, he was saying the biblical uh, understanding of, of what this life is supposed to be, of suffering and of difficulty, is so foreign now that we really, it, it lines perfectly up with the American dream. I remember what a big impact that had on me and, and on several other of you in the church. And you actually begin realizing that that's how I'm living. Think of the 19th century, the age of evolutionary thinking, if you will. Christian scholars began imposing the evolutionary template on the development of Scripture. 
the Wellhausen School of Higher Criticism in Germany. We began to, be, to, to doubt the inspiration of Scripture. We began to, to start hearing that, that the Scripture was written many years later by these authors called JEDP. We began doubting the inspiration of Scripture. Go back even further to the Crusades, a direct result of the age of fighting the Islamic expansion. Nowhere in Scripture, nowhere in Scripture does it say that we should convert people through conquest. Yet that's what the church was doing. These are the macro origins of division within God's universal church, if you will, but it happens on the micro level of each individual church, doesn't it? When the hearts of the people within that church begin to hold on to worldly principles and import them right into the church. And we all do it, don't we? We all do it. I do it. You do it. Let's just think for a second about some of the worldly principles we live in and among right now. Listen to the world's logic. Nice guys finish last. Nice guys finish last. Me first. I'm the most important. My preferences should be listened to. My preferences should be indoctrinated. Think of how that causes division. You don't have to think very long. Versus the scripture which calls us to, in humility, consider who? Others better than yourself. Or how about another worldly wisdom? Save your money for a rainy day. That makes a ton of sense, doesn't it? Security, though, that's what it's getting at. Where's your security? Placing your security in something other than Christ. Scripture tells us, don't lay up treasures for yourself on earth, where moth and rust will consume, where thieves break in and steal. Instead, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. God, totally countercultural. Or how about pull yourself up by your own bootstraps? We love that one. Right? We live by that mantra. Rugged individualism. I don't need any help. I can do it. Even though when we look at you, sometimes we go, no, you can't. You can't bend down and get that pencil. Versus in Christ, though many form one body, and each member belongs to the other. How about Teddy Roosevelt? Speak softly and carry a big stick. We love that one. That's strength. That Be strong. Lead with strength. That's exactly the problem that was happening in the Corinthian church. They were looking for strength. They were leading with strength. They were looking at Peter and going, what a gifted leader he is. He's led the, the church for 20 years. I follow Cephas. Or Paul, what a, what a gifted man of God in teaching, 
In evangelism, I follow Paul. Apollos, a brilliant orator, a preacher par excellence. I follow Apollos. Each has its draw because of a particular strength that they have. So people align themselves behind him. And that is the worldly principle that Paul wants to draw out. You're following strength. It's a worldly principle. You're following it. You're importing it. Be careful. When actually that is the exact cause of the division. But then Paul begins to outline the cure for the division within the church. If you're in chapter 3, you can stay right there and look with me at verse 5 and following. Paul begins to outline the cure for division. How do you come back together? He goes on and says, what after all is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you, can, you came to believe. As the Lord has assigned each his task, I planted the seed, Apollos watered, but God made it grow, people. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labor. For we are all God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid the foundation as an expert builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds, for one, cannot lay, uh, for one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, or costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, this work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. But if it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? And that God's spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred, and you are that temple. Do not deceive yourselves. If any one of you thinks he is wise by the standards of this age, he should become a fool so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting about men. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are Christ of Christ, and Christ is of God. Here he begins to remind God's people, guys, you're all servants. You're all servants. That's what he's saying in verses 5 through 9. Paul planted, Apollos watered, but God made Corinth grow. It's not about strong leadership. It's not about an incredible charismatic giftedness. It's all about God. 
It's a reminder that we are just fellow workers, servants of Christ. That's the brilliance and, and wisdom. I mean, think of this for a second, guys. John the Baptist had an amazingly loyal following. And then Jesus comes. And he baptizes Jesus. And Jesus starts his ministry. In chapter 3, we have some of, Paul, some of John's followers coming to him and saying, Hey, listen, people are leaving us and going to that guy that you baptized a while back. We're losing people. Do you remember what John says? He must become greater. I must become less. Do you realize how remarkable it is for a man to say that in that position? That is godly wisdom. He realizes that he was but a servant of the Most High God, Jesus. And that's what we all are, servants of Christ. So if you want to begin killing division that you see happening in your own heart or in the hearts of others, remind yourself, remind the others that you're just a servant. You're just a servant of God. Remind yourself of your position. Secondly, realize that you're a temple. The cure for division is to realize that you're a temple. In verses 16 and 17, Paul brings this to full light. He says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? He's not talking about you personally. Do you realize that? Yes, God resides within you. But the you there is plural. He's talking about the church. He's speaking to the church. You are the temple. And God's spirit lives in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred. And you are that temple. Suffice it to say that Paul uses the image of temple to highlight how sacred and how important the church is to God. Historically, the temple was the central place of worship. It was the place where, where God actually resided in the temple. He resided in the temple, amazingly. Where he, sacrifices were given for forgiveness. Where God met with his people through a mediator. Where Yahweh touched earth. Think about that. God touching earth right there. And now all that is true in the body of believers. That's amazing when you start thinking about that. I wish we had time to just preach on these two verses because it's so loaded. The temple is no longer a building. The temple is now a bride. We are his beloved. We are the apple of his eye. He loves us so much that he was willing to give everything, even his life for us, so that we could have a relationship. And if anyone harms this bride... And this is talking, Paul is talking to the divisive people. If anyone harms this bride, if 
anyone destroys this bride, it's even hard to say. God will destroy you. That's what Paul is saying. That's, that's how serious God takes this. You know, in, in God's perfect justice, perfect justice, he doesn't react like we do. You know, we get mad and we overreact. You know, our kids do something little and we've had a bad day or we, we're, we're fighting with our wife or our husband and all of a sudden we, the, the punishment certainly does not fit the crime. With God, the punishment always fits the crime perfectly. And he's saying, if you touch my bride, again, it's hard to say, I'll destroy you. That should take the gravity of our little nitpicking to a whole different level, shouldn't it? If you're ever tempted to start causing little division, and and, and most times it's not a cognitive thing, but if, if a brother or sister comes up to you and says, you're starting to cause division, take it seriously. It's not just your preference on this, or you'd like to see that in church, or you, we should be going this direction and doing this differently. Be very careful. It's not saying don't bring things up, but how you do it. Finally, remember your foundation. The cure is to remember you're all servants, realize you're a temple, and remember your foundation. In verses 10 through 15, Paul explains that he laid the foundation. He's talking about him planting the church. But then he goes on to say in verse 11, if you see there, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid which is Christ Jesus. Christ is the foundation of the church. You know, he's saying, listen, you want to follow me? That's ridiculous. I'm just a fellow servant. And I'm not going to participate in that. The foundation is Jesus Christ. And by that, he's meaning the foundation. You guys are looking for strength? You want strength? The foundation is Christ. And that's weakness. Do you realize he's pointing to a weak example? Let me flesh that out. Turn back to, with me to chapter 1 and verses 18 and following. Where right after he warns them of, of and implores them not to divide over strength, he says this, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent. I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased to save, uh, pleased through the foolishness that was preached to save those who believe. The Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. 
For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. The central point Paul is making is found in verse 23. I hope you picked up on it. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Here they're dividing over strength and strong leaders. They're looking for strength. And he's saying, you know what your foundation is? Weakness. The foundation of Christ is weakness. Christ crucified is the foundation. The ultimate display of weakness in that society, being nailed helplessly to a cross, a weak and socially embarrassing and reprehensible death. And honestly, you know, we, we don't tend to think of it, well, maybe we do tend to think of it in this way. That weakness that the gospel represents is maybe what keeps some people from sharing Christ. Have you ever thought about that? If you walk through the gospel, it's actually a pretty weak position. For God so loved the world to the extent that he sent his co-equal son into the world. That's what we tell people. That God sent God. That's foolishness to the world. That's foolish. The Trinity is foolishness to the world. That's the weakness that we start with. And then we continue with weakness. So God was incarnated. God became man. Was born in a human, as a human in a stable to an unwed mother. I mean, think of the foolishness that we are trying to explain to people. God who created everything became man. Yet that's what the gospel tells us. And by the way, he didn't come, you know, God who created everything, who just spoke it, he's that powerful. He didn't come with any fanfare. You know, we just installed the 45th president. I don't know if you watched it. There was a ton of fanfare. And we went on and on and on. Balls and parades and accolades and this and people standing at attention and saluting and all dressed up. God came with none of that. But he came. And by the way, he was human. But he was God. He was both. And he lived out his life perfectly. Think about that for a second. When you're trying to explain somebody that he was absolutely perfect, not just in action. I mean, people can fake the action. We all do it to some extent. But in thought, he never had a sinful thought. We just covered that back in Sunday school today. Could you imagine? He never went from knowledge to curiosity to desire. And then perhaps the greatest weakness found in the gospel is our leader, our foundation, was accused of a capital crime, a capital offense, and was executed 
in the, in the fashion that they kill people for capital offenses, and that is crucifixion. He was stripped naked. He was beaten. He was mocked. As a matter of fact, some of that mocking even, even uh, gives kind of flesh to the weakness of the cross. Those passing by looked up at him and hurled insults and said, you know, you who's, who said you would uh, bring down the temple, why don't you come down off the cross and we'll believe in you? There's the flesh of weakness right there. They identified the weakness. And then you and I are called to tell people, after we explain this weakness to them, he did it all for you. He came and took your sin, the sin that you struggle with, he took the penalty of that. He died, not you. How does that, how does that work? A man 2,000 years ago, 4,000 miles away, doing something for me. And then we have the audacity to say, the, maybe the weakest statement, and if you trust him, you'll live forever. If you trust that weakness that I just described, all of it, you'll be saved. That's the foundation we have, guys. And Paul's saying, you want to follow Apollos, the brilliant order? You want to follow me, a gifted evangelist? You want to follow Peter, an amazing leader? You want to follow strength? That's worldly. Christ crucified is the foundation. And it's weak. Utterly weak. Worldly principle of strength? No, don't import that. Import weakness. Weakness. We look for strength, and that's what our flesh does. But the foundation of our faith is foolishness and weakness. And that's the great paradox that we have to deal with. Strength through weakness. Strength through weakness. The deceased pastor and professor at Westminster Seminary, Jack Miller, wrote this. I want to read it to you because I think it's right on. And I'll tell you right now, it's not going to make a lot of sense to you, maybe. The great paradox of the kingdom concerns the weak, strong, right, and wrong. The paradox is this. Those who are strong and right are actually weak and wrong. And those who are weak and wrong are actually right and strong. What does this mean? He writes, there are two great drives in our heart, one to be strong and the other to be right. We love to be right. Every day we wake up and our hearts are seeking to be justified, seeking to be right. I'm right about my kids. I'm right about my spouse. I'm right about my work. I'm right about how my home should run. I'm right about how the church should function. I'm right about my enemies. The other desire of our heart is that we be strong. We love strength. We love the strength that comes through money and youth and beauty and intelligence and prestigious work and good health and fame. 
We work hard to be in positions of strength in our relationships through manipulation, control, intimidation, and anger. We hate to take the weak position, the position of powerlessness. Nevertheless, he concludes, by taking the position of being right and strong, we are distancing ourselves from the people we love. But more importantly, as we place ourselves in positions of strength and rightness, we are actually distancing ourselves from grace and from the Spirit's power in our lives. For Jesus tells us that his power is made perfect in weakness, right? And there's the great paradox, people. That comes to bear in your Christian life in two ways. One, it comes to bear on whether you enter the kingdom of God. Whether you believe the weak gospel that I just explained to you. Do you really believe it? That's the only way you'll enter into the kingdom of God. Is by believing that weak position. By trusting in his humiliation. By trusting that he did live the life that I can never lead. And that he finished the work. And that his seeming failure means your total forgiveness. That's the gospel. That's the foundation, the entering in. But then it has a second effect. Maybe you're sitting here and thinking, well, I've I've checked that box. I'm okay. No, it comes to bear as you grow as a believer. You want to grow? You must live weakness. You must apply the gospel to your life every day. And let me tell you at the, at the beginning, it will make you look weak. If you apply the gospel to your life, truly it will make you look weak. Fyodor Dostoevsky wrote a book on this. It's called The Idiot. The book, his book is called The Idiot. And what he did is he wrote a book where he took Prince Mishkin as the main character and he made that character make every decision based on Christ. And as the book unfolds, the society, the people begin to see him as an idiot because he was living out the life. If you want to grow as a believer in Christ, you have to absolutely, 100%, be willing to be seen as an idiot. You won't grow otherwise. You'll be leading from strength. You'll be putting on the veneer. You'll be thinking about what other people are looking for and strengthening that. Because the gospel call, continually calls us to that position. The very next chapter, in chapter 4, Paul writes this. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. He's talking about himself and others. We are in rags. We are brutally beat, treated and are homeless. 
We work hard with our own hands. We are cursed, yet we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. Up to this moment, we have become the scum of the earth. That's how he describes himself. The refuse of the world. Paul is speaking about being weak. And he's saying, you want to see weakness? Look at me. As a matter of fact, if you keep reading in chapter 1, he says, look at yourselves too. (laughs) None of you were of high birth. Strength and rightness distance us from the power of the gospel people. So in closing, I want to challenge you a little bit. Are you willing to be wronged in a relationship and accept that even though you're right? Are you willing to be viewed by your friends as needing the crutch of Jesus? Are you willing to absorb culture's mocking without striking back ever? Are you willing to put forth your ideas in this church? And when they're not followed, accept it and follow where the church is leading? Are you willing to be generous to the detriment of your own lifestyle? Are you willing to hold your tongue even when it is so satisfying to say this one thing to this person? It'll never get out. Are you willing to stick with the relationships in the church even though you get incredibly hurt? Are you willing to forgive even when everything inside you and even people on the outside are saying, no, you're right. Are you willing to live the gospel even if it makes you look like an idiot? Because no matter how much, we simply can't believe it. When you are right and strong, You're actually weak and wrong because the power of the gospel is made perfect in weakness. Please pray with me. Father God, thank you for your word. I pray that you, Spirit, have moved hearts, changed hearts, and transformed minds through your word only. In Jesus' name, amen.